There is a, um, a very popular and uh, beloved Christmas hymn called Silent Night. You know, you know that song, right? Silent Night. And the first stanza of this hymn reads like this. It reads because I'm not going to sing it. Okay? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender. And mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. I read about a children's Sunday school class that heard the Christmas story, and afterwards they sang Silent Night. They were then asked to draw what they thought the nativity scene might have looked like on that silent night. You follow it? One little boy drew uh, a really good likeness of Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. But off to the side was this roly-poly figure. The teacher, thinking that the boy had somehow worked Santa Claus into the nativity scene, asked him who that was. To which the boy replied, Oh, that's Round John Virgin. It might take a while. Just let, just let, it, let it percolate. That, that's round John Burger. Round John Burger. Yeah, that was good. We're, we're just going to stop right there. I'm on a high note. <laughs> So, so the boy did not have the right picture when it comes to the Christmas story. But that can go for us just as well. Oftentimes when we think about the Christmas story or we look at Bible passages related to Christmas, we may not see the right picture either. And what I mean by that is this. We tend to look at what is being described for us in isolation. As a stand-alone event, rather than seeing the passages correctly within the context in which they are given to us. A context 
which typically includes great tension and turmoil. That's the consistent and often overlooked context behind the Christmas story. Since the beginning of December, I have been sharing Christmas-related messages from the Old Testament. And this morning, I'm going to do the same. This time, from the book of Micah. And for the sake of context, I need to provide you with some background information. Okay? The prophet Micah was from the village of Moreshtha, which was situated about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was located in a rural part of the country. It was a farming community far outside the urban influences of the capital city. In those days, just like our days, greedy investors were buying up small family farms and developing properties which created all sorts of social problems. Problems which greatly concerned Micah. He saw that those with power, those who engaged in shady business practices, those who had influence in the government, lived in luxury. But it was off the backs of the less fortunate who suffered. Micah spoke out against the the social injustice created by the greedy political and spiritual leaders of his day. He courageously pleaded for change. But unfortunately, his message fell on deaf ears. As a prophet, Micah primarily ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. But he also prophesied about the northern kingdom of Israel. He saw the coming judgment of Israel by the Assyrian Empire in 721 B.C. And then he warned Judah, who would survive the Assyrian onslaught, that unless they returned to faithful worship and sincere obedience, they too would fall under God's judgment. Well, we know from biblical history that Judah, under the rule of King Hezekiah, 
You know that name. King Hezekiah, a righteous king, did respond to Micah's message from God. However, their repentance was shallow and short-lived. And as a consequence, under the rule of a disobedient king, some 135 years later, Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem would be overrun by the Babylonian Empire. The prophet Micah sees all of this coming for God's wayward people. People who don't want to listen. People who don't want to change their ways. So in judgment, the Assyrians will pounce on Israel and take them into exile. And later, the Babylonians will defeat Judah and deport its people. It's going to happen just as God has told the prophet Micah. That's the backstory of this book. A backstory of great tension and turmoil. So if you have your Bible, turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, and we will begin with verse 1. Micah 5, verse 1. Micah says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Let's stop there. In this verse, Micah looks ahead to this long siege against Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And they are told to get their troops ready. To defend themselves because the fight is coming to them. A fight that will even threaten their king. History tells us that the Babylonians will come in great force. And when all seems hopeless in Jerusalem, King Zedekiah, Not Hezekiah, but King Zedekiah. And his officers will try to escape, but the Babylonians will overtake them. They will strike Zedekiah to humiliate him. And then, to add great insult to injury, his sons will be brought in before him and executed in front of him. That will be the very last thing that Zedekiah 
sees. For they will then take out his eyes and take him off to Babylon in chains. So Micah delivers a very somber prophecy of judgment that's coming. It's a prophecy filled with great tension and turmoil, and yet Micah is also allowed to see far beyond to the future restoration of God's people from an unexpected place. Let's continue with verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In contrast to the great tension and turmoil prophesied against God's wayward people, there is a glimmer of hope for the future. Coming from the last place anyone would think of. The little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was located in the ancient district of Ephrathah, given to the tribe of Judah. Identified this way to distinguish it from another Bethlehem, which was in the tribe of Zebulun. When describing Bethlehem Ephrathah, Micah tells us that it was so little and so lowly that it wasn't even counted among the cities of Judah when the land was divided during the days of Joshua. Now, if you recall, it was the hometown of Naomi, and the hometown of Boaz. It was the hometown of King David. But even so, there were only a few hundred people living there. It was too little to be among the clans of Judah. So the prophet Micah tells God's wayward people that their present situation is hopeless. It's hopeless. But God's plans go far beyond the present into the future. And in the future, from the most insignificant place comes the most significant person, the ruler of God's people. 
his physical birth would be in a humble place. But he is eternal. Micah says his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And that's where we jump in to the deep end of the theological pool. So bear with me. Obviously, Micah is referring to Jesus, who some 700 years later would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. But before Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloth, before he was laid in a feeding trough, Jesus preexisted in eternity past. Let me share a few passages with you that speak to this truth. In the first few verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Apostle John wrote this when describing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. You guys know this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Then later in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before there was any conceivable point in eternity past, God existed. God existed. And throughout various accounts described in the Old Testament, God revealed Himself in dreams and in visions as fire of a burning bush in mighty miracles such as the parting of the Red Sea and in the glory and the glow of the Ark of the Covenant. But there came a point in time when God stepped out of eternity and became tangible. Flesh and blood who could be seen and heard and touched. Jesus became the tangible 
image of God, stepping out of eternity into humanity to dwell among us. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. The Apostle Paul also had something very similar to say about the eternity of Jesus. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I love this passage. Colossians chapter 1, and beginning with verse 15, Paul says, He, this referring to Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is before all things, the first cause of all things, the first of importance and rank, the visible expression, hear me, the visible expression of the invisible God, meaning the very nature and character of God are perfectly revealed in Jesus like the reflection of a mirror, like the radiance of a sun. I once read of a, of a great European cathedral whose ceiling was adorned with a painting of God. Drawn in brilliant colors, but the ceiling was so high and the cathedral so narrow that it physically hurt visitors to crank their necks back to view the painting. So the ingenious priest placed a mirror at ground level and tilted it so the worshipers, by looking in the mirror, could study the image of the painting above. Jesus made it so that God was tangible and accessible to our human senses. Therefore, when we want to know what God is like, We simply need to look at the life of Jesus. For he alone is the visible image of the invisible God. Now lastly, to make you think a bit, let's go all the way back to the creation story. 
described in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, we are told, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In all the previous moments of the creation story, the Bible simply tells us, then God said, then God said, and it was done. But when it comes to this passage, we are presented with some very interesting pronouns. Do you see them? Let us, us, our image, our likeness. They are plural. Referring to God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When put all together, Micah is saying the same thing. From long ago, from the days of eternity past, Before the measurement of time, before the foundation of the world, Jesus existed. And some 700 years later, during another great time of tension and turmoil, a time when another foreign invader ruled the land, the Roman Empire, Jesus would step out of eternity into humanity. Now, let's transition to the New Testament and we'll see how this prophecy of Micah unfolds. In another little town, the town of Nazareth, a backwoods farming town some 80 miles north of Bethlehem, a young virgin named Mary receives an unexpected visit by the angel Gabriel. Understandably, Mary is startled by his presence. Who wouldn't be? But Gabriel comforts her by telling her that she is favored of God. 
Then, as if Gabriel's appearance wasn't enough to process, he gives Mary a surprise birth announcement. Beginning in Luke 1, Luke 1, beginning with verse 31, excuse me, the angel Gabriel announces to her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So Mary, congratulations. You're going to be a mother. Your your baby is going to be a boy, and you will name him Jesus. And oh, by the way, just so you know, he is the Son of God. Just want to toss that out. He is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah that you and your people have been hoping for. He's the King. Not a king, but the king who will ultimately rule forever. Later, an angel, maybe it's the angel Gabriel again, appears to Mary's fiancé, Joseph, who's trying to figure out why Mary is pregnant. Not really why, but but, but who. And in a dream, the angel tells Joseph that Mary has not been unfaithful as he has assumed. Yes, she is pregnant. But the child which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is told that Mary will bear a son and his name will be Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Both Mary and Joseph are now on board with God's plan and with the support of family and friends around them, Mary can deliver her baby boy in Nazareth. But when? According to God's word proclaimed by Micah, Jesus is to be born in 
Bethlehem, not Nazareth. And that brings us to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus, the nephew of Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time, ordered a census to be taken for the purpose of collecting taxes from Rome. This was done every 14 years. But this time, in this case, each Jewish male had to return to the city of his father to record his name, his occupation, his property, and those in his family. At that time, Rome was ruling the known world, and Caesar Augustus was the pagan emperor. He knew nothing about the one true God, but unknowingly, he becomes an instrument in God's hand to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth some 80 miles north to Bethlehem to fulfill the promise that the Messiah would be born there. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In God's sovereignty, in the right place, at just the right time, Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. And while they were there, Mary delivered her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth, laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in an inn. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we are told this in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Contrary 
to your nativity set. This does not occur until Jesus was about one and a half to two years old. So if you break or you lose some of those figurines, don't worry about it. Just, just say it. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like out, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. We are told a group of magi, not kings, magi, astrologers, they are stargazers who looked for signs in the heavens and were following this special star come from the east to Jerusalem. Because they wanted to find the one born the king of the Jews. Why Jerusalem? Maybe because Jerusalem was the capital city. It's where the royal family was. So maybe these magi expected to find a toddler in the royal court. I mean, they're looking for a future king. They knew he had been born, but they didn't know exactly where. Following his star. And so they ask, when they're in Jerusalem, where is he? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Well, King Herod hears about this. He's troubled. He's threatened. He's threatened by the news that another king had been born. So he called together all the chief priests and the scribes, and he had just one question for them. Just one. Where is the Messiah to be born? And without any hesitation on their part, they share the prophecy from Micah. That the ruler and shepherd of God's people would come from Bethlehem. No one doubted the prophecy given by Micah. And that brings up an insight I want to share with, with you. When speaking of prophecy, and I know some of you are very interested in prophecy. I am. Warren Worsby, I like Warren Worsby, he says this. Listen to this. Whenever a prophet foretold the future, okay, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious. It's encouragement for the serious. 
I like that. Prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious. It's encouragement for the serious. When Micah gave his prophecy to God's wayward people, the present desire was that repentance would come to them and they would turn to their God. But unfortunately, God knew they would not. Yes, they had a knowledge of God, but they were not serious about following God. And they suffered the consequences just as foretold by the prophet Micah. Now, if we were to continue, and we are not, but if we were to continue with Micah's prophecy, we would learn that Jesus will be rejected by his own people, the Jews. And as a consequence, God will put them on the back burner, so to speak. God's attention will then be given to the church, to us. But there will come a time when the church is snatched away raptured to heaven. And once again, the Jews will be on the front burner, almost literally, on the front burner during the tribulation period. The tribulation period is primarily for the Jews so that they may turn to the Savior they rejected. And after that, just as promised, Jesus will come again. Not as a helpless baby, but as the ruler and shepherd to establish his earthly kingdom and to restore his people once and for all. Christmas reminds us that even in the tension and turmoil, God keeps his promises. Just as promised, at just the right time, the God of eternity past humbly stepped into humanity in the little town of Bethlehem. That's the miracle of Christmas. And as promised, and just as miraculous, at just the right time, Jesus will come again. But this time, in victory.
for all the world to see. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for sending Jesus to us. Someone who could relate to us, who could experience what we experience, even the temptations we experience. He experienced it all. And yet, he was sinless. Thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that even even during this Christmas time, we could see him more clearly. It's easy to get so distracted with all these things going around us that we lose sight of who he is. Even in the tension and turmoil. Father, may you be honored and glorified in us. Draw us into yourself. Help us to live for you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning, actually pondering a couple questions. They're kind of common. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? I mean, Lord, I mean, you could have just sent us some rules to follow. Just, just, you know, maybe ten? Just, just a couple of rules? You know, we just follow those, right? Yeah. Why did he have to come in the flesh just send us some rules? He did. Did we follow those? No, no. Maybe instead of coming in the flesh, you could have sent some messengers who could speak on your behalf. Sure, you would have listened to them. Why didn't he do that? He did. Yeah, he did. (laughs) It's comical, isn't it? He did everything that he needed to do to get our attention. To turn us toward him. When you go back to the garden, how many rules did they have? Just one. Just one. What do you ten? Just one rule. Couldn't even keep that. That explains why God came to us in the flesh. He tried to do things. And the scary part is there are still some people who reject him. In light of all he did, he took the initiative. He came to us. We didn't go to him. He came to us because he loves us so much. What else could he do? Oh yeah, he could go to the cross too. Because he loves us. That's what Christmas is all about. 
God came to us in the flesh. I enjoy the festivities. I enjoy the presents. I enjoy all that kind of stuff. But we can't lose sight of what Christmas is all about. God came to us. And if we miss that, we have missed Christmas here. Now maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you more than you ever know. He proved it over and over again. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else that's on your on your heart. I would love to pray with you. However the Lord moves you, just be obedient. Just be obedient and responding.